Today's podcast will be the first podcast in a three-part series on renal cell carcinoma. The episode is entitled, The Evolving Landscape of Adjuvant Therapy. CME for this podcast can be obtained at the AUA University. Thank you for joining us today to talk about the evolving landscape of kidney cancer treatment. Today's discussion is going to be talking about the evolution of the urologists in the care of the kidney cancer patient, and also focus a bit on the emerging field of adjuvant treatment for kidney cancer. My name is William Hong. I'm an associate professor of urology at NYU Langone Health, and I'm here today with Dr. Viraj Master, professor of urology, associate chair of clinical affairs and quality, and director of the clinical research unit at Emory University. Dr. Master's practice primarily focuses around patients with kidney cancers, and so therefore there'll be a lot of uh, issues to discuss today with Dr. Masters. Good morning, welcome. Thank you. So Dr. Master, if we could just start off by uh, having a broad overview uh, as to what the role of the urologist has been in, uh, in the different uh, stages or disease states of kidney cancer at this time. It's interesting, Dr. Huang, as the years have gone by, I think the role of the urologist has expanded to way outside of the old dogma of kidney mass equals nephrectomy. We now have to think about patients at every stage of disease presentation, whether it's a small renal tumor, and we're trying to decide on what to do next, to a large renal mass or locally advanced disease, or the patient that comes in with metastatic disease that we diagnose and have to counsel treat and work with other colleagues to improve the care of that patient. So we have more tools in our toolbox to deal with and more thinking to do about the patient who walks into your office with a renal mass. Sure. So why don't we start first with, I suppose, the, the lowest possible stage or what the majority of patients who have renal masses present with being the small renal mass. So uh, I know that's not a large part of your practice given the, you, that you're a referral physician and you see larger tumors and more advanced tumors, but uh, say a patient comes in with a two centimeter incidental renal mass. Uh, what, what's the typical discussion that you'll have with them and what are the treatment options that are currently available to them? That's a great question, Bill, and as you well know, because of the tremendous utilization, some might even say overutilization, of imaging in America, you have pain, you get a CT scan or an MRI, we're finding a lot more small renal masses that we have to deal with. And really, in the last couple of decades, we're finding them in younger and younger patients. And to me, then, we really have to try to understand, are we going to do a treatment that could potentially substantially affect the patient's quality of life for years to come <clears throat> if we do a nephrectomy for a small renal mass? Conversely, if you have an elderly patient, and patients in America are living longer, they have more comorbid diseases, it's a well-established fact. There aren't a host of variety of medications that affect their kidney function. Maybe that person with a small renal mass may be, may be best benefiting by non-aggressive treatment of that mass, but rather management of that mass. So with reference to the patient with lots of comorbid diseases and perhaps impaired renal function, I definitely quote to them the data that supports the fact that active surveillance for small renal tumors is a safe and effective thing to do. We at Emory have looked at the three-dimensional growth kinetics of renal tumors, and the vast majority either don't grow, a few get smaller, and you probably have seen that in your own practice as well, 
And the ones that are growing geometrically or exponentially are really the ones that we need to intervene on. So I would say that we have a large fraction of patients on active surveillance protocols. The onus is really on us to try to diminish the patient's burden of worry, mm -hmm. as well as to potentially diminish the burden of financial toxicity by not insisting that every patient needs an MRI every six months or a CT scan every six months, but perhaps the utilization of ultrasound as a non-invasive, non-ionizing radiation modality is perfectly legitimate. And I think the community urologist can look at the safety data that's been published worldwide and really embrace that active surveillance works as a concept for the uh, older patient with comorbidities. Conversely, the younger patient that we see who's 30 and busy and a busy working professional with lots going on, it may be a undue burden to put them on an active surveillance protocol as well as the fact that that tumor may have many years to progress and develop and perhaps that patient might be a candidate for more definitive therapy. And that gets us to the issue of there are a lot of definitive therapy <laughs> options that are available to patients. Uh, you know, at the far end of the spectrum, there's the performance of radical nephrectomy, which most experts would say is probably in a vast majority of cases not necessarily needed. Although, in my own practice, there are still patients with small renal tumors who may end up undergoing, after a lot of counseling, a radical nephrectomy, uh, mostly depending on location, location, location mm -hmm. of the tumor, whether they have normal contralateral kidney, what their renal function is like, what their family history is like. So I use that to help guide me. I also am highly impressed by the ability to try to help risk stratify a patient by the performance of renal mass biopsy. And I think that's something that is achieving uh, greater utilization in many centers. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a little bit outside of the scope of our discussion today, but does renal mass biopsy play a routine role in the management for your small renal masses at this time, or is it sort of a case-by-case -case basis? I think that the AUA has done a wonderful job trying to help all urologists decide on when renal mass biopsy might best be indicated. If you're suspecting that something may be a metastasis from another location or potentially something like a lymphoma, great. Uh, time to consider doing a renal mass biopsy. Just recently, I saw a lady with a three centimeter renal mass and then taking her history, it turns out she had a history distantly of lung cancer. I felt that there certainly was a possibility when I looked at her scan that looked a little bit atypical. We biopsied it and it turned out to be metastatic lung cancer to her kidney. So if we're going to be suspicious, then consider a renal mass biopsy. And the other thing that I think is relevant is the patient who is on the fence about definitive treatment or not might benefit from a renal mass biopsy to prove that they have a cancer with an aggressive potential to it. Now I will say, and you and I both see patients and pathology reports just like this, sometimes mm -hmm. you don't get the magic answer from the renal mass biopsy. 
the renal mass biopsy sometimes may actually not sample the really aggressive component of a small renal mass, and there's some nice uh, data that has looked at this before. But in general, in general, not to downplay the role of renal mass biopsy, I think it is a very legitimate tool. It's important as a urologist to discuss carefully with the radiologists who are doing renal mass biopsies that you want cores and not fine needle aspirations because otherwise it makes the pathologist's job somewhat harder, if not sometimes impossible, to achieve really the information that the patient and you want, which is, what is this? Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk a little bit about then the surgical options, uh, and you briefly mentioned this radical nephrectomy being one, partial nephrectomy being other. Uh, I imagine that for most small renal masses, everyone would agree that partial nephrectomy really is considered the standard of care at this time. But uh, I'd like your opinion on the management of, say, uh, PT1B tumors or PT2 tumors, whether or not you think that radical nephrectomy still has a role today, or should all localized kidney masses be a partial nephrectomy candidate unless proven otherwise? You yeah. know. The emotions in, in our field run high on this subject matter. <clears throat> should everyone with a, a renal tumor of whatever size undergo a partial nephrectomy? And there are certainly many experts who feel absolutely answer is yes, always try. And then I think that there's others who feel that there is a single randomized trial um, that has shown that radical nephrectomy is favored. So how do we deal with that? In my view, we, we need to do what we've always done, which is to look at the individual patient in front of us. I think that the patient who has a normal contralateral kidney is a patient perhaps in their 50s, 60s, or 70s, um, meaning that they have demonstrated the stability of their renal function over time. They have an absence of comorbidities in terms of diabetes, hypertension, other things that affect individual nephrons. That patient might be best served by a minimally invasive radical nephrectomy, go home the next day, return to their uh, work or lives in a quick fashion as compared with exposing that patient to the potential really severe downside risks that are tightly associated with the complexity of partial nephrectomies. Mm -hmm. um, however, perhaps the very young patient who has a very uh, hard tumor to access, maybe that patient requires real consideration for partial nephrectomy. Um, with the expectation and counseling that that patient may suffer some consequences of urinary leak or potentially post-operative hemorrhage. Yes, I, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, in many circumstances, perhaps the enthusiasm for partial nephrectomy may be unwarranted, I suppose. Uh, but I think at this point, it's still up to the discretion of the patient and the surgeon to decide, uh, especially for a localized renal mass that could be a candidate for partial nephrectomy, for them to choose to undergo partial nephrectomy. Correct. I could not agree more with you, Dr. Huang. I, I think that, as I said, although there are certainly very strongly held opinions on this matter, the concept, as you allude to, of shared decision-making between the patient and the physician is really important. There is no question that a small renal tumor hanging off the bottom part of the kidney, yes, let's try to do a partial nephrectomy. but. Um, when we really talk about very complicated partial nephrectomies, the shared decision-making, and 
evaluation of the patient's preferences for risk tolerance of complications is very important, and I spend a lot of time talking to patients about that. I will say I'm very impressed how the AUA experts um, in renal cancer surgery have really helped to make partial nephrectomy more feasible and safer and helping to diffuse it out to patients all over the United States and indeed worldwide, uh, particularly with the use of minimally invasive methodologies like robotic partial nephrectomy. Excellent. So now if we move along sort of the, uh, the uh, different uh, stages of, of kidney cancer, uh, let's talk a little bit about now patients who present to you with say very large masses, uh, masses that have associated lymphadenopathy, uh, renal thrombus, uh, renal vein thrombus, uh, or even metastatic disease. Uh, so uh, describe to me what currently the, the role of the urologist is in, uh, say, to, for the patient that presents with widely uh, diffusely metastatic disease. Yeah, it's interesting that in spite of the use, uh, increased use of imaging all over America, whether you go to an ER with you know, a, a hangnail, you might get a CT scan of your abdomen, the fact remains that we have not changed the overall numbers of patients presenting with metastatic disease, mm -hmm. particularly in young patients. So as urologists, we are going to have to contend with the patient who does have widely metastatic disease. So that does happen. We see it in our practices, whether it's in an academic practice or a community practice. So the one of the most important things I think to remember is not to abdicate responsibility of the care and treatment of that patient with widely metastatic disease. Urologists have a significant role to play. It is not just an immediate referral to medical oncology and then never seeing the patient again. I think it should be a close conversation with the medical oncologist, the patient, about the potential role of cytoreduction mm -hmm. uh, in terms of performance of a cytoreductive nephrectomy or perhaps removal or treatment of metastases in that patient, recognizing the patient likely is going to need systemic therapy, but their survival and indeed quality of life might be improved with cytoreductive nephrectomy. So it sounds like you still agree, even in this era of immunotherapy and tyrosine kinase inhibitors and other targeted therapies, that the urologist still has a very active role in the, in the management of patients with metastatic disease. Is that correct? I think that it's unequivocally true that urologists need to hold true and embrace their role of participating in the care of these patients with metastatic disease. Since the seminal publication by uh, the Dr. Flanagan and others many years ago, every single time, whether it's a randomized clinical trial that was conducted by Dr. Flanagan or large administrative data set mining, or multi-institutional collaboratives, every single time we've looked at it, cytoreductive nephrectomy for most patients plays an important role in terms of increased overall survival, even in the era of you know, modern day targeted therapies like tyrosine kinase inhibitors, mTOR inhibitors, and so on. And the data continues to be studied uh, in terms of trying to knock the straw man down sh showing well, finally, we have the drug that's going to obviate the need for cytoreductive nephrectomy. It just hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. what, we, what has happened, I think, is probably defining the patient population who's really not going to benefit from cytoreductive nephrectomy. But 
that it has expanded our understanding of who might benefit from cyberreductive nephrectomy. As much as urologists, we've advanced our surgical care uh, of patients with all kinds of urologic problems. Other fields in interventional oncology, as well as neurosurgery, orthopedic oncology, et cetera, have also advanced the care of treatment of patients with met metastases. And it used to be when I was a trainee, and likely you as well, if a patient had a brain metastases, it was a no-go to perform a cytoreductive nephrectomy. Yet now, both looking at large-scale data sets as well as our own clinical practice, there is remarkably good treatment of brain metastases with stereotactic radiation, uh, neurosurgical methodologies that result in patients achieving durable long-term uh, disease-free uh, survival in their central nervous system, and they do benefit by cytoreductive nephrectomy. So clearly, you, you've uh, reinforced uh, the point that even in patients with widely metastatic disease, the urologist still plays an active role. Uh, if we back up a little bit and say, looking at the patient with regional adenopathy, uh, what's your opinion on uh, going after uh, doing a cytoreductive nephrectomy as well as resecting sites of oligometastasis, for instance, or regional adenopathy? Yeah, that's, that's the... <laughs> it's a bit controversial. There's somewhat of a, you know, as urologists, we have to try to gather as much data as we can, so all of us need to participate, hopefully in encouraging our patients to participate in data registries or clinical trials. There is really not a good clinical trial that you can hang your hat on in terms of whether you should do a lymph node dissection or not. Circa 2018, right now, the pendulum has swung to the fact that perhaps lymph node dissection does not benefit the patient. I personally feel that the data still has some areas of uncertainty, and I do offer lymph node dissection to patients who, patients who have large and bulky adenopathy. And I think that it's possible to do a safe debulking operation um, using tools of minimal invasive surgery but also open surgery. I, I don't think that we need, we need to abandon open surgical principles um, for the sheer performance of doing something minimally invasively. If we think for a second outside of our own field of urology, every single solid organ malignancy that's ever been studied has shown that cytoreduction makes a difference in overall survival. So with that kind of basic principle of tumor biology in my mind, I do offer cytoreduction to patients. Now, it's a little bit outside the scope, but since we're on the topic of cytoreduction uh, and a multidisciplinary approach with, with other malignancies, uh, do you see uh, the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy or neoadjuvant therapy for patients with metastatic disease prior to cytoreduction as becoming uh, a future standard of care for these patients? I really do think that for most cancers and in our own field, renal cancer and others really need to embrace some of that novel thinking that neoadjuvant therapy is likely going to be very important. And there are some small series that have been published looking mostly at retrospective 
data series of the use of neoadjuvant therapy, what we lack is really highly effective neoadjuvant therapy. Mm -hmm. So most of the studies have looked at um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and they showed generally a 20 to 30% response rate. There's incredible pictures sometimes of a completely disappearing tumor with neoadjuvant therapy, but those are really to be remembered to be few and far between. Sometimes what can happen is the patient is highly desirous of avoiding a surgery, goes on to try neoadjuvant therapy, and somehow never appears back in the office of the urologist again. And I think this is where it is our role to continue to communicate with the medical oncologist and with the patient to try to see them during the course of their uh, disease treatment to help them understand if, if neoadjuvant therapy is really not working to alleviate their symptoms, palliate pain, hematuria, a feeling of early satiety for large left-sided tumors, for example, there is a role for surgery. Uh, uh, in your practice, have you ever referred someone for neoadjuvant therapy specifically in order to, quote unquote, make them resectable or to allow them to undergo a cytoreductive procedure? Uh, or is that sort of a, uh, individual case-by-case -case basis? I think that's a great point. I, I have referred patients for getting preoperative um, therapy to try to downsize them to make surgery easier. And I will just say that I've actually never really seen those patients back in my office again. I've now uh, partnered much more closely with our medical oncologists and actually trying to practice what I've been preaching and actually communicating with them on a frequent basis now, especially now as we have second and third generation uh, drugs that might have more activity in this space. So I probably am trying the principle of neoadjuvant therapy more often than I have before, and I've uh, written clinical trials now to prospectively study this. There is a, um, a really a reality that the 2005 drug, sunitinib, and its uh, competitors are probably not as good as some of the 2017 drugs. So maybe now we can revisit this issue, but I think it really should be done ideally in the context of a clinical trial or a study. It's not to be forgotten. There's huge expenses associated with giving patients pre-surgical uh, systemic therapy like this, as well as the fact that there's a lot of side effects. So sometimes you have a patient who would be a good candidate for surgery, and when you see them again, they've had substantial side effects and their performance status might have declined, and they're really not a candidate any longer. So I think that my overall take on the available data is that it's not quite ready for prime time yet. Certainly not for the average community urologist because we don't know enough about the safety profile, who's going to benefit, who's not going to benefit, which drug to use, how much of it to use, as well as we've not really trialed it with the modern immuno-oncology agents yet either. So I would say case-by-case -case basis like you just alluded to and close communication with everyone involved. So now that we've talked about both ends of the spectrum, the small renal mass, and then the patient with widely metastatic disease, I want to now sort of move into the middle, which is going to be what the focus of the rest of this discussion is about, is uh, for what we consider, I guess you could say, the high-risk patient with localized uh, kidney cancer. So 
this would be the patient that uh, has a clinical stage two, uh, stage 3A tumor, maybe a vein thrombus, maybe some uh, shoddy regional nodes that are completely resectable at the time of nephrectomy. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, who you could consider a high-risk uh, patient with localized kidney cancer. That's a that's the target area that we really, as urologists, need to address to your exact point. There's tremendous work going on in the metastatic disease setting, and tremendous advancements have been made. And frankly, urologists have really led the way in showing the safety and efficacy of the treatment of small renal masses. We know we're going to get 90-plus percent survival on the with the treatment of small renal masses, but as you say, if a person has a 7-centimeter renal tumor, their survival is not 90%. It's often substantially lower than that, and that's the, the prime target to try to improve those survival rates, either by treatment um, besides just surgery with adjuvant therapy or potentially neoadjuvant therapy, or as is done in some malignancies, particularly in gastrointestinal malignancies, neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy. So it is our opportunity to uh, embrace local therapy and systemic therapy. So until uh, the arrival of an FDA-approved drug for the use in the adjuvant setting, uh, describe what the current standard of care was prior to this in a patient who had uh, a large localized renal mass or a renal mass that uh, was completely resected but had adverse pathologic features like a 3A or yeah, the, you know, we would all see patients who we had done such an operation on and they had adverse pathologic features, either a very poorly differentiated cancer or a cancer that invaded uh, the renal sinus fat or the perirenal fat or into the veins, um, be it segmental renal veins or the renal vein itself or into the vena cava. And what we really were able to tell the patient was if we run you through various risk calculators, you're not going to do well. And let's surveil you more frequently. And really, that was our standard of care, um, high-intensity surveillance of the patient uh, looking for the development of metastatic disease, and the patient and the urologist holding their breath with each mm -hmm. single um, three-month or six-month scan. Uh, recently, the standard of care is, has migrated slightly with the FDA approval of sunitinib in the high-risk patient. The pivotal trial was the ESTRAC clinical trial that gave patients a whole year of sunitinib and uh, assessed to see whether it would improve survival. Now, the take-home message is it doesn't improve overall survival. The patient doesn't live any longer. However, the reason that this was published in a high-profile journal was that it does improve disease-free survival. So it prolongs disease-free survival for about a year. Now, on the one hand, patients might be highly desirous of that, not having disease appear in their bodies, and not know that doesn't change overall survival. On the other hand, these drugs are not without side effects, and I think of it uh, using the Spaghetti Western title, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. The good is that you do have increased disease-free survival. Um, 
the bad is that it doesn't increase overall survival. The ugly is that 50 to 60% of patients have meaningful toxicities that do interfere with their quality of life. So I think that it's a nuanced discussion, although there is an evolving standard of care with this approval, it is not the panacea that we've been looking for. Mm -hmm. So we've got more work to do. Now we'll be discussing this with Dr. Paul, the medical oncologist, in, in a future segment. However, maybe you could touch a little bit upon why perhaps the approval of uh, sunitinib and S-TRAC is considered controversial for, for, for a variety of different reasons. If you could just briefly talk about that. I, yes, great. it's a great question. So if you can give a drug that is less toxic, patients and their physicians might be more accepting, but these tyrosine kinase inhibitors do have toxicity associated with them, whether it's skin toxicity or whether it is um, toxicities in even something as simple as a metallic taste in the mouth, um, dysgeusia that can be present in 50 to 60% of patients are really problematic. And finally, there's the financial toxicity, which is a really important component that patients in our current healthcare system experience. These drugs uh, cost between ten dollars to $14,000 a month, and even with um, co-payment assistant programs, patients often uh, do have to suffer some of these financial toxicities. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some, some potential to pause before necessarily enrolling every patient you see with high-risk adverse features onto uh, sunitinib for a year. Right, and I think it's also fair to say that there were other studies out there that have completed that did not necessarily find this, this similar findings as S-TRAC. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because, you know, there's been a lot of popular press that has, that has touted how there's this new, the drug that can improve survival, albeit disease-free survival, but uh, there, every other drug of its class that has been looked at has not shown this. So um, through the cooperative groups mechanism, ECOG studied the use of sunitinib and serafinib and showed no increase in survival in any patient cohort, whether it's ultra high risk or high risk mm -hmm. groups. Similarly, a trial done with pizopinib, a medication that has achieved a lot of popularity with patients and medical oncologists, uh, has also was a bust. It did not improve survival. And then most recently, um, the latest incarnation of a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that has been studied, axitinib, also was shown in a adjuvant trial where patients were randomized either getting this medication or not, did not improve survival. So there were a lot of swings and misses in this space with really only one tiny base hit, I would say. So, so clearly this is not a huge paradigm change uh, in your opinion, uh, and I think for a lot of us that uh, the, the approval of sunitinib in the adjuvant setting has not clearly answered uh, all the questions that we have and fulfilled all the needs that we have for these high-risk patients. So uh, in the absence of uh, putting your patient on uh, sunitinib uh, in the uh, high-risk patient in the adjuvant setting, what are the other options that we can offer our patients nowadays who, who had a resected uh, uh, high-risk kidney tumor? You know, the entire world of oncology has tremendously embraced the principle that perhaps immunotherapeutic agents, immuno-oncology agents, might play a really important role in the adjuvant setting and in the neoadjuvant setting. 
But particularly, there are a number of clinical trials right now that are enrolling patients to a wide variety of different immuno-oncology agents. Uh, and those are trials that patients really could be considered for in every single community in the United States with access to a large medical center, be it academic or a large uh, community medical center, there are usually these trials available and they should be offered and considered to patients if they have an interest in advancing their own care in the context of a scientific clinical trial. One of the largest ones that is currently ongoing is through our own, our very own uh, Society for Urologic Oncology Clinical Trials Consortium network, and that is the Emotion Clinical Trial, where patients uh, after surgery are randomized to either placebo or to atezolizumab, which is uh, an IV medication that they get for a period of some months following nephrectomy. It's also to be remembered that very same trial also includes patients who have resected metastases. So sometimes patients who you as a urologist may have done a nephrectomy on several years ago have a single isolated metastases in an organ, for example, lungs. If those patients are fully resected, maybe those are patients who can be referred on for this trial. And perhaps the use of an immune modulating agent might improve their survival. So these are important questions to be asked and answered. So I think it's an important message to get out there then that these trials are available uh, and that we should encourage anyone who performs nephrectomies for kidney cancer to be aware of such trials. Um, can you tell me what you've seen in the community, or at least in your practice area, uh, about the dissemination of this information and whether or not uh, we are doing a good job in making the local community urologists aware that they should be referring these patients, uh, particularly in a timely fashion, in order for them to participate uh, and offer these, these, these options for their patients. I would say that we now have so many tools of modern communication. The onus is really on us uh, from a academic community to make sure we partner with our community urology colleagues to give them as much information as we possibly can through a wide variety of formats, such as the conversation we're having mm -hmm. today we have so many tools of modern communication, whether it's text messaging, Twitter, Facebook, of uh, pushing back and forth communication. So I welcome my community urology colleagues uh, talking to me by whatever methodology is easiest for them to even ask a question, is there anything else available for this patient who I'm worried about, meaning I've done their uh, initial cancer care treatment in terms of surgery and now I'm worried about them. So. I think that the AUA really is also embracing the principle of education in the context of we only make advances with studying things scientifically in clinical trials. Look at what has happened in breast cancer with 40 years of clinical trials. Now there's meaningful ways of improving the survival of such patients. We can do this in urology. Uh, renal cancer is one of the top 10 cancers in America by studying patients in the context of clinical trials, we can make a difference in the, their lives and the lives of the next phase of patients who develop kidney cancers. 
So I, I think that's an important point uh, that, that we're trying to get across today is that there are certainly options for, for these patients who have high-risk disease. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those who right now we still have an un unmet need? For instance, many of these clinical trials we've talked about uh, are really referring to patients with the clear cell histology. So if you have a patient who is high risk, who has uh, papillary type 2 or, or hist histologic subtype sarcomatoid, predominant sarcomatoid that doesn't fall under the clear cell category, uh, what, what do you see coming down that, that we need to offer these patients or what can we do today to help these patients? Uh, that's a great question. There's a tremendous unmet need in aberrant histology. And what is actually true is that our pathology colleagues are slicing the pie even thinner and thinner. So where it may be that before we'd only see clear cell and papillary and chromophobe, um, now we're seeing all kinds of other definitions of kidney cancers that sometimes are uh, eliminating patients from consideration on certain clinical trials. And so I think the opportunity area, therefore, is to at least enroll patients on registries and expose them to clinical trials for non-clear histologies. There's not a lot of them. There's actually not. But through the uh, cooperative group networks, there is, for example, a clinical trial for patients with papillary renal cancer, that urologists are the real leaders in this. So as urologists, we are the ones seeing these patients with histologies that are not traditionally studied, and we've responded as a field by trying to create clinical trials for them. So I'm very pleased that urologists partnering with medical oncologists, particularly in the SWA group, are being able to push forward clinical trials for other non-clear histologies. So again, I think the overall principle is time to, you know, text or, or call your partners who might know a little bit more about what trials are available. Sometimes there's not, to be honest. Sometimes there's just a terribly adverse uh, histology like a collecting degot carcinoma, and there's not much that can be done. On the other hand, unless we ask, we don't know. Right, and I think that's, that's an excellent point, and that's one of the points also that I think we should try to take home today is that the, the responsibility and the care of the urologist for their patient with kidney cancer doesn't merely end after they've removed the kidney or the tumor and that uh, every single stage or step of the way, the urologist should take an active role, correct? Yeah, I think that it doesn't necessarily mean the urologist is losing control of that patient. It, I think it exposes the urologist, their patient, and the patient's loved ones to the fact that there might be some more information that can help to improve that patient's quantity of life and quality of life. Excellent. So if we could sort of, as we wrap things up, uh, just stress over the, the, the certain key points that, that, that we've talked about today, but I, I also want to, at the very end, sort of help our colleagues uh, identify who we think are high-risk patients uh, and who would benefit from seeking evaluation for an adjuvant uh, clinical trial? I would say that uh, that's a great way to wrap it up, uh, Dr. Huang. I think that uh, we, would, we really should talk about the fact there's also now a new adjuvant clinical trial of giving patients uh, immune oncology agents, particularly uh, nivolumab before surgery, then the performance of radical nephrectomy, then or partial nephrectomy, and then post-operative 
nivolumab as well. So uh, giving, exposing the patient to medication that could influence their immune system at two different points in care, that's something that urologists really can play a role in because we're the ones who are seeing the patients usually first. And so the patient with a, a renal tumor that looks to be deeply invasive is a patient who might have a T3A tumor that's a candidate for this trial. The patient with a very large renal tumor, again, a candidate for this trial. So there are there is a new adjuvant trial that this is the first ever that it's being done and our opportunity is to uh, consider how to get patients to centers that are um, performing this. It doesn't necessarily mean that it takes that patient away from the urologist. The urologist still performs the nephrectomy, radical, or partial, uh, but the patient can also get the benefit of potential neoadjuvant therapy, uh, all within the context of a clinical trial. But the high-risk patient is the patient that we we know it. It does not, it does not require uh, a subspecialty focus in urologic oncology or in kidney cancer care. Mm -hmm. All of our community urology friends know the patient who is uh, at risk for doing badly. A huge renal tumor with uh, poorly differentiated features uh, is the patient who everyone, including the patient and the urologist, worries about. So I would say size makes a difference, grade makes a difference, and a stage in terms of penetration of fat or uh, venous structures makes a difference. So those are the three take-homes that I'd have to tell our, our colleagues. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that conversation really now, which may have never happened, should be happening even prior to the patient undergoing treatment, that there are other options and that there may be things that we can do in addition. Absolutely. I think that every time a, a patient comes into your office and says, is there anything else, doctor? Good time to uh, enlist the aid of the internet in searching for a clinical trial that's available to the patient, as well as, frankly, in a shared decision-making fashion, tell the patient also to reach out. There are mm -hmm. some amazing patient advocacy groups that help to provide education. The AUA itself is pushing forward uh, the education of uh, community urologists in this space. So there are trials available. And without trials, we're not going to make a difference. Excellent. Well, Dr. Master, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us today. Thank you again and uh, helping us uh, push forward this very important topic. Thank you. A pleasure. We would like to thank Pfizer Incorporated for their support in producing this educational activity.